You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. The tech sector being not just one of the greatest creators of wealth, but one of the greatest creators of wealth for the 1%. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. There's already positive change that's going on uh, within organized sports. We're reducing this chance of second injuries. There is no 100% secure website. There is no 100% security for your system. This is KCBS In-Depth. Since the coronavirus first began spreading through Wuhan, China late last year, we've been buffeted with nonstop reporting about the illness. But for all the information that's out there, there's still an awful lot of questions we still have yet to answer. I'm Keith Manconi. This is KCBS In-Depth. And today in the program, we're going to take stock of what is known and what is not known about this disease and try to figure out what it could mean for us here in the Bay Area. To give us a hand, we're joined now by two Bay Area health experts. First, want to welcome onto the program Dr. Sarah Cody, the director of Santa Clara County's Public Health Department and a county health officer. Dr. Cody, welcome back to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you. want to welcome as well Dr. Charles Chu, a professor of laboratory medicine and infectious disease at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Charles Chu, welcome to you as well. Thank you. So right off the bat, uh, I want to point out, because this is something that has a surprising amount of misconception about it, here in the Bay Area, we still only have a handful, a very small handful of confirmed cases. This is not a disease that's transmitting from one person to another, as far as we know at this point, Dr. Cody. That's correct. As of today, we still have two confirmed cases in Santa Clara County, two confirmed cases just south of us in San Benito County, and those are the only four cases in the Bay Area right now. All right. So just an important thing to get on the table right there, because if you do pay any attention to sort of the way that some people are talking about this right now, not necessarily everyone knows that. First topic that I want to get to, though, is what makes coronavirus distinctive, uh, a distinctive threat to deal with in the Bay Area as opposed to elsewhere in the U.S. And one thing that is distinctive about the Bay Area is its very strong ties to China, both in terms of the large share of our population who is of Chinese heritage and also SFO, which is obviously a gateway to the U.S. for many Chinese travelers. So just given the fact that Wuhan, the city, uh, is where this, uh, both the epicenter and the origin of this disease, and the fact that there is so much travel between, uh, so much interaction between China and the Bay Area, Dr. Cody, does that make the uh, the task of preventing the spread of the disease any different here than elsewhere in the U.S.? We started thinking about this question a while back when we start first started hearing reports, and we did anticipate that we might see cases earlier than other parts of the country just because of the history of a lot of travel between the Bay Area and uh, Asia, including China. And this is, of course, for personal travel. A lot of people have family and friends, as well as business travel with all of the Silicon Valley companies and their ties to China. So in some ways, we weren't surprised here in Santa Clara County when we had, uh, you know, some of the first some of the first cases. So uh, we've been we've been preparing for this for for some time. And it's I would say that our experience during SARS back in 2003 was similar. Santa Clara County, you may or may not remember, had two of the eight cases in the entire country during SARS. Mm, Right. So 
I want to get into the basics of this disease. Obviously, uh, a lot of people out there probably know that this disease is related. It's within the family of diseases that uh, caused SARS uh, back in 2003. Uh, turning to you, Dr. Chu, what is it about this family of disease in particular that when a new one arises, it's of special concern to health professionals? Well, this particular virus, uh, this novel coronavirus from China, it is a member of a family of viruses, uh, the, the coronaviridae family. These are all coronaviruses. And in fact, there are only um, seven known uh, coronaviruses that are known to infect humans. Uh, we actually do have four seasonal coronaviruses. Um, they have some unusual names. Uh, you've probably never heard of them, like OC43, HKU1, etc. These are coronaviruses that are commonly associated with the common cold, and they circulate, they cause, they're endemic in the United States. Uh, they're thought to be up to 20 to 30 percent of all respiratory infections in children, for instance, are thought to be due to these four circulating coronaviruses. Among the remaining three, though, uh, these are the coronaviruses that we worry about because these are coronaviruses that are essentially very recent introductions from animals to humans. So there are really three of them that we know about. Initially, SARS in 2002, a coronavirus, uh, which also emerged from China. Uh, the second coronavirus is MERS, or Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus, which um, actually arose in the Middle East. Um, and it, actually, the animal reservoir for that virus is thought to be camels. And now we have this new coronavirus, uh, which is the 2019 uh, novel coronavirus that emerged from Wuhan, China. Um, I think that the reason why we're really worried about these new coronaviruses is that um, typically when viruses in general, when they jump from animals to humans and they, have, and they have never been circulating the human population, they tend to cause more severe disease and for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, since we've never seen these coronaviruses before, we have no immunity uh, to novel or new coronaviruses that jump from animals to humans. And similarly, um, because it's a new virus, we don't really know much about it, especially in the early stages of an outbreak. We don't know, for instance, how transmissible it is, how much, how deadly it may, uh, how severe the disease it may cause, and how easy it is to, um, to infect others. Um, the route of transmission is a, a critically important aspect of that. So I think it's because we don't know about much of this virus, uh, we, we lack information that it, it's, it's, uh, this is why we worry about it uh, until we can get the in information that can inform um, how, we, how we manage uh, and both the public health response and how do we treat patients. Mm, yeah, you raised a couple of interesting points there, uh, just in terms of its transmissibility, uh, how severe the symptoms may be, what, how, how frequently people may die when they have this disease, and also the question of can this disease be spread asymptomatically? It seems like at this point that uh, seems to be the case. We do seem to be zeroing in on answers to a lot of these questions. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Chu. It seems like it's probably a little bit more infectious than SARS, but a little bit uh, significantly less deadly. Is that correct? That, that, that is correct. It, correct. It, it does appear that it is more infectious than SARS, and at least based on uh, kind of initial uh, reported estimates, it does appear to be less deadly. So uh, we, uh, there are fewer deaths than from SARS. Um, however, um, to just take things into perspective, it still is, as, as an infection, it does appear to be more deadly than, for instance, influenza. 
Um, you know, it might be anywhere from 10 to 100 times more deadly. So it's, it appears to be intermediate in its severity of disease between influenza, the seasonal influenza that we encounter every, every year, and SARS. Mm. And uh, Dr. Cody, anything that you want to add to our picture before our conversation goes on, just in terms of stuff that you would really hope people know about this virus? I would echo many of Dr. Chu's comments. I think that from a public health perspective and a communications perspective, really our greatest challenge is all of the unknowns about the virus. So usually in public health, we know one of the core areas of our work is preventing and controlling communicable diseases, but most of the communicable diseases that we prevent and control, we know everything about them. Mm. We know about uh, the what modes of transmission, level of uh, asymptomatic transmission, um, the range of severity of illness, the populations that are most likely to be severely ill, and we have tools in our chest. We have vaccines, we have um, prophylactic medications, etc. So what's different about this virus is we're learning as we go, um, and we don't have all of our tools developed yet. So I sort of see it as if we start with a very hazy picture, and every day we add a, a couple more pixels and it's becoming a bit clearer, uh, but it's not completely clear yet. Hmm. I, I guess maybe a question that I'd like to put to both of you then is, given that we are learning a little bit more day by day, what's the trend line? Are, are we finding that this virus is less concerning or more concerning than we may at first have uh, feared? Dr. Chu, how do you feel about that? Yes, indeed, we are learning day, uh, day by day. Um, now we're starting to see, for instance, uh, some reports come out in, in the scientific literature. So, and, and I do know that many of the, the journals that produce scientific papers, they're expediting any, any research or any information that's really available uh, about this virus. Um, I do feel that there are some aspects of what we're learning that are more concerning and some aspects are less concerning. Uh, it certainly is, um, it certainly is less, it, it certainly is a relief to know that this, at least that this virus appears to be less virulent or less severe than SARS, um, in that you can have uh, many people who are infected, but they may have minimal symptoms. Uh, they may just have, for instance, a runny nose and, and maybe a, a mild fever. Or in some cases, and this has been documented, you could be infected but have no symptoms at all mm. and never develop symptoms. Mm. On the other hand, there, there does appear to be a subset of people, um, and generally uh, these tend to be uh, persons who are older than 60 who may have some uh, pre-existing conditions such as heart disease or liver disease, uh, who may be more susceptible to developing severe disease. And usually when it manifests as severe disease, um, they develop shortness of breath, uh, which can then develop into a life-threatening pneumonia. So, and there are a subset of, of people who do appear to, uh, to be more likely to develop severe disease and require hospitalization as a result. Um, so, so the fact that it does appear to be less severe than SARS is 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 a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the fact that it does appear to be quite infectious, um, if not more infectious than SARS, is 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 a bad thing, mm. and and that's simply because we cannot. Um, uh, be, because if you have a large number of infections that are what we call subclinical, uh, meaning that these are patients who are infected or individuals infected who do not have symptoms or have very mild symptoms, they may never seek medical care. They may never even show up to the doctor's office, much less to the hospital. Um, and so what, what it raises is the possibility that there's a lot of 
low-level transmission of the virus that's ongoing where, um, from a public health perspective, that we can't really track this. Uh, we can't really be able to monitor and really to be able to evaluate the, the risk of spread and, and implement measures that can prevent spread of the infection. Mm. All right. So one pixel at a time coming into focus, as Dr. Cody did say. Before we move on, I want to remind our listeners real quick that they are listening to KCBS In-Depth, their weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we're asking the big questions about coronavirus. What is it? What risks does it pose? And what will it mean for the Bay Area? Joining us on the program today, we have Dr. Sarah Cody, the director of Santa Clara County's Public Health Department and a county health officer. Also just heard from a second ago there, Dr. Charles Chu, a professor of laboratory medicine and infectious disease at the University of California, San Francisco. So Dr. Cody, turning things back to you. Now, one thing that I notice as a reporter is whenever I call up a health department over the last several weeks, I don't get an answer or uh, I get an email from the person I'm trying to get in touch with saying, sorry, can't take emails right now. I'm dealing with coronavirus. So this seems to be a very busy time for the folks in the public health profession. Imagine it's a very busy time for you. Tell me a little bit about the work that's going on right now. Sure. Well, it's it's been very intense, to be honest, over mm. the last over the last few weeks. So we started organizing um, our formal operations center. Our it's called our medical health joint operations center. We started this a few weeks ago, uh, way before or some time before we had an initial case. Primarily because um, the level of concern in the community was so high and the volume of calls was such that we couldn't manage it with our usual staffing. So that prompts us to create our emergency operations center. And fast forward, um, you know, a, a few weeks, we are still um, fully operational. We've pulled in staff from other county departments. Um, we are a seven-day-a-week operation, and it's... It's both response to the cases that we have and the contact investigations, but it's also having enough people to think about um, what's next and how might we need to pivot. Because as I mentioned, I think I mentioned before, the way that we're approaching this right now in public health is our very traditional um, public health mode where you do everything you can to identify a case, you isolate the person who's infectious, you trace all of their contacts, you, you um, have all of the contacts stay away from work until they've passed a period of time during which they might develop symptoms. Um, but as, we, as these pixels begin to appear over time, we have to be ready to change direction. So as Dr. Chu was mentioning, if there's a significant degree of asymptomatic transmission or people with very mild illness that would go unnoticed, um, then, then we would need to take a very different uh, approach, potentially, where it's more how we manage um, a severe influenza season, for example, where we ensure that people who are most in need of medical care and support who are really sick get attention from the hospital and those who are less ill and can recover at home have the guidance to recover at home. It would be a very different strategy. Mm -hmm. And we're sort of in the, um, still in the learning phase to see where we are and when, when, when we might need to pivot and, and what that would look like. 
So it sounds like some of the work is tracking the cases that we know about or tracking the suspected cases and making sure we have a handle on uh, where this is spreading or where this could be spreading. But you're also saying that there is some preparatory work going on if it were to spread more widely like an actual influenza outbreak. How do you prepare for something like that? What does that mean to prepare for that? Well, there's like lots of different buckets of work. So just just to back up, we still have a whole team that's following our two cases that are isolated. We have a whole team that's that's uh, talking to providers all day who are calling in with a patient that they're concerned about that they might have this uh, infection with this new virus. Um, there's a whole other team that's just monitoring the contacts as well as the travelers that are arriving um, on, uh, you know, coming in through the airport, arriving on flights from China. They also all need monitoring. So that in itself is a pretty big body of work. Then we have another team that's um, thinking about uh, how, what might this look like for the healthcare system? How would we need to support the healthcare system? How would we need to support um, schools or, or other partners? And of course, we continue to have a huge presence with our communications team so I hope they're answering your emails and calls. They do answer. Actually, I didn't. I, I overstated that. They, they do Thank answer you. eventually. They, I get the uh, the automatic reply that's saying I'm not going to answer your email, and then five minutes later they answer it anyway. So we've had, had a lot of a lot of interest uh, in this topic. Yeah, I would imagine so. So should I should I be picturing you guys in there with like the war map spread out on the table, going through all the possible moves and variations? Is that sort of the image? We are very formal. We all wear our vests. <laughs> we, honestly, we're in a, at a formal incident command structure, much as you would see if the county was responding to a fire or flood or earthquake. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, another important piece of work uh, that is going on is being undertaken by uh, another person that we have on the show today. That would be Dr. Charles Chu. So you are well known right now for doing some pioneering work in terms of the tests that are needed to uh, quickly determine whether or not somebody is infected with the disease. If you could tell me a little bit about why it is difficult to test for this new disease and how we might get better at that. Sure. So so the, the most common test for viral infections in general and for this virus is a test that's called the polymerase chain reaction. It's abbreviated as PCR. Uh, what this test does is it looks for RNA. It looks for part of the genetic makeup of the virus. Um, and uh, this is a direct detection test, meaning that if I take a nasal swab from a patient uh, who may be infected with the virus, uh, we are looking to see if there's any evidence of the RNA from that virus being in that nasal swab. Uh, what makes uh, this test uh, useful is that this is a test that can be done very quickly. Uh, in fact, it can actually be done in two to four hours. Uh, the, the, the test that's being run currently by the United States CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, can, can be run in four hours. So once you receive the sample, you can get an answer in four hours. The problem right now is that um, since, um, and it's again trying to learn a little more about like adding these pixels to the outbreak, um, the, the tests uh, were essentially developed, all tests for this virus were essentially developed over the past month, meaning that, um, and in general, it takes several months to years to actually develop diagnostic tests. So the, the rate at which we're developing these tests has, has had to be accelerated over time. Um, and so as a result, uh, currently, for instance, in the United States, um, the only approved test, um, there's an expedited pathway called the emergency use pathway by the FDA, but the only FDA-approved test now um, to actually test for this virus is done by the CDC. Uh, 
And what that means is that although you can test for the virus in, say, four hours, um, you still have to send the sample overnight to the CDC uh, for it to get tested. So in, in reality, it ends up being uh, 24 hours or longer before you actually have a result for any patient that comes in. Um, what we're trying to develop um, in my lab is um, we're working with um, a company, a startup company, biotech company called Mammoth Biosciences, um, and they have a technology that's known as CRISPR technology. Um, it, it is a technology that has been used in the past for gene editing, and it's actually received a lot of media attention for its potential applications for gene editing. Um, but uh, the, the same properties that enable you to do gene editing with CRISPR technology allows you to use it to actually detect viruses or detect really any target very quickly. So it's our hope that we can develop a test that potentially does not need to be used in the laboratory that could be done in what we call point-of-care settings. That could be done, for instance, in a doctor's office, uh, in the emergency room, uh, perhaps even at the airport and where you'd be able to get an answer in under half an hour. Mm. And so, so, so that, uh, now, I, I do feel that right now uh, this type of test would be most useful in somewhere um, like such as in China, for instance, where, uh, where clearly uh, the virus is circulating um, and where um, we re there really is an urgent need to diagnose patients as early as possible so that they can be, um, they can be isolated and treated. Mm. Well, it's uh, just a little bit more of the work that's going on right now here in the Bay Area. Some cutting-edge research right there. Real quick, before we move on, I want to remind our listeners one last time that you are listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi, and today we are talking about coronavirus and what it could mean for us here in the Bay Area. Once again, speaking with Dr. Sarah Cody, the director of Santa Clara County's Public Health Department and a county health officer, as well as Dr. Charles Chu, a professor of laboratory medicine and infectious disease at the University of California at San Francisco. It's taken with you for a second, Dr. Charles Chu. You know, one of the big unknowns here is whether or not the efforts that are going on in China to quarantine this disease to prevent its spread, whether or not those efforts are going to work. We have some indication that it's, at this point, more likely than not that it is going to escape. At least that's the tone that we're getting from CDC right now. The director of the CDC said in recent days that the coronavirus is, quote, probably with us beyond this season and beyond this year, indicating that it's probably not going to be suppressed into one spot. What's your view on this? How, wi how widespread do you think it's going to spread around the world? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's definitely something that, that's of concern. The possibility that this coronavirus, which is up until now has really been an emerging outbreak coronavirus, might uh, turn into something like a seasonal coronavirus. Um, so to give you some idea is it's, it's thought in the past, for instance, that we, as, as I mentioned earlier in the program, there are seven known uh, coronaviruses that infect humans. Four of them are seasonal coronaviruses. Uh, so there certainly is a possibility that if we're unable to eradicate the disease in China or stamp out the infections in China, that eventually that this will be a virus that um, is becomes endemic uh, throughout the world, becomes what we, what we would call a seasonal coronavirus. So I think that is the worry right now in, in that um, if we're unable to prevent spread in China, eventually it's only a matter of time before we will see infections continue to spill over and, and essentially take hold in other countries. And, and I think that currently um, this is 
partly why uh, there have been such uh, mobilized and large-scale public health, both in the United States and globally, public health response to this, because um, it's, it's a hope that uh, these quarantine measures um, would, would, which is really the primary tool that we have to prevent spread at this point, that these measures would uh, may be effective in, in controlling the outbreak in China. But if we're unable to control the outbreak in China, it's, going, it's only going to be a matter of time, I believe, before it spreads to other countries. Hmm. All right. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left in the program. And uh, before we go, I do want to leave our listeners with some actionable advice for things that they can do in their day-to-day. A couple of uh, do's and don'ts that I think might be on a couple of people's mind. Uh, Dr. Cody, where do you come down on this question of whether or not people should wear masks? Are we recommending that people wear uh, surgical masks or other kinds of masks to prevent this disease? Um, we're, we're not recommending that. We're not recommending widespread mask use. Uh, the time when you would want to wear a mask is if you're sick and for some reason you need to go interact with other people, you can wear a mask and prevent uh, spreading your infection to someone else. The, for, for any kind of, of these type of vi- viruses, um, influenza in particular, hand washing is really important. Uh, ha- you know, washing your hands and being mindful to not touch your eyes, nose, and mouth. One other really critical thing that we ask everyone to, for, to help limit spread of any infection is, if you're sick, please stay home. Don't be a hero and go to work. Mm. <laughs> please stay home if you're sick. And if you suspect it's the coronavirus, call the hospital and let them know before you go in in person. Well, we've, we, we hope that the message is out that if you, uh, that one, if you're sick, that you stay home. And the other is that if you're sick and you have a travel history, that you call your health care provider and your health care provider knows how to call the local health department. Hmm. All right. Very last point I want to touch on uh, before we go, because I know that this is something that uh, Dr. Cody has written about. So we have heard a number of reports of the fear around coronavirus fueling discrimination and even acts of racism. Uh, Obviously, a lot of reports as well about people staying away from Chinatown and Lunar New Year festivities as people have the misconception that going to Chinatown uh, would put them at a greater risk of contracting coronavirus. What is the message that as a public health official you would want to get out there to confront some of these misconceptions? We, we've tried to really confront this head on uh, and, and call it out. And many other health departments are doing, doing the very same thing. What we're emphasizing is that your risk of exposure to the novel coronavirus has to do with your travel history, with your risk of exposure to the virus. It doesn't have to do with your, your race or ethnicity. And some of the discrimination that we're hearing about um, in schools, in workplaces, in businesses is creating uh, a, a lot of harm, um, harm to businesses, harm to, harm to people. And um, that it, at the moment may be more harmful than the virus itself. So we are trying to uh, call it out um, and join with colleagues in other health departments and other communities um, to do to do what we can. We we actually saw something similar during during SARS. Mm, all right. So important points to keep in mind as this ongoing health crisis unfolds around the world. We have been speaking today on KCBS in depth to Dr. Sarah Cody, the director of the Santa Clara County Public Health Department and uh, a county health officer herself. Dr. Sarah Cody, thanks for being here again. Thank you.
Also been speaking to Dr. Charles Chu, a professor of laboratory medicine and infectious disease at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Charles Chu, thank you as well. Thank you. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.